0: it is that some things always stick in your mind, or maybe I should say that some things stick in your mind more than others, and I suppose the one thing that sticks in my mind as much as a lot of others about my trip down to visit Brother Son Abraham in Guyana was all the questions that were asked of me, asked to me, however you'd say that, by the young people down there. And everybody down there that i seen that was connected with his church was a young person, younger than I am. I think the oldest he had at that time was probably around 25 in the whole church. And it seemed like when you go out to church, before church it would be eight or ten kids standing around you asking you questions about America. And it's amazing what they would ask. I, I remember to this day how many times I was asked what New York City was like. And I'm sure it just blew their minds when I told them I hadn't been there. I mean, you know, that, they just couldn't conceive of anybody that lived in America that hadn't been to New York City. That was it. That was the place. And the other question I always remember was being asked if I owned a Winchester and a six-shooter. That was the two primary conceptions of America in those kids' minds, it seemed to me, was either from the Louis L'Amour, L'Amour, whatever his name is, novels, the Western novels, they had a whole slew of them down there. They all read them. seemed like and who he was. They asked me if I knew him, too, by the way. Told him I just hadn't met him. But uh, it was in the old Western New York City. And that was just about their extent. The extent of what they knew about America. They were pretty ignorant. It was a great place in their mind. It was a tremendous place. And they all wished they could be there. And they were so interested in knowing all they could about it. That should be the way we are when it comes to heaven. We should be interested in knowing all that we need to know about it. We should be anxious to find out. After all, we're going to live there. It's not just a great place and I wish I could go, but we as Christians are going to be there someday. In fact, we're going to spend a lot more time there than we do here. But most of us are ignorant about heaven. Yes, we are. We're ignorant about it. You say, oh, oh, but I know it's going to have streets of gold and pearly gates and, and there's going to be mansions there and there's not going to be any sun and, and no night and no day and all those things. Now, wait a minute. Yeah, we do know those things. But that's the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to study about that next week. But what about where we go the moment we die now? Before the resurrection. What do we know about that? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. I would uh, like to think that we are so ignorant about this place we call heaven because so little is said about it in the Word of God. There's a lot said about the new heavens and the new earth. There's a lot said about the millennial reign of Christ. But not all that much said about heaven. If I may limit that phrase to the place where we go in this day and age when we die. Turn with me. Some of you may be uh, sitting there wondering, what in the world is he talking about? So I know some are, have not been Christians as long as others. Some have not received all this teaching that uh, has to do with the return of the Lord and so forth. So let me review quickly for you by turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 13. Paul says, But I would not have you... To be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others that have no hope. Now, when a Christian dies, Paul refers to that as sleep. But we have to remember he's referring to the body when he talks about sleep. The soul does not sleep, the soul is not unconscious. The body and the body alone sleeps. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also who sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. Now remember that. Those who sleep. Those whose bodies sleep when the Lord returns will come with Him. How are they going to do that if their bodies are asleep in the ground, buried in a tomb? There has to be a separation. Our bodies are asleep, but ourselves, our spirits, our souls are with the Lord. And when he comes, we come back with him. Now when he returns, this is what's commonly known as the rapture. And this is the first stage of his return, which uh, in this case will not be an actual return to earth, but he'll come in the clouds as we see, as we read on. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. Now the Christians that are alive will not precede those who have died and are asleep. In other words, they will be resurrected before we are caught up together to be with the Lord. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the rapture, the coming of the Lord to resurrect those that are dead, the bodies of those that are dead that they might go full, go first of all to meet the souls or the spirits that come back with the Lord. And then secondly, the Christians who are alive and remain will be raptured and their bodies will be simply taken up and changed from mortal to immortal. Now that occurs at some point in time in the future. We don't know when, nobody knows. It could happen at any time. It could happen tonight. But until that event takes place, those Christians who die will physically be put to sleep, that will be put in the grave, but our spirit, our soul, whatever you want to call it, our immaterial part, immediately upon our last gasp of air goes to be with the Lord. Now, that's what Paul is referring to when he says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, our spirits, our souls, that which is ourselves more than anything else, which leaves our body at death, being absent in the body, is present with the Lord. Now, it's this intervening period of time between the time of our death and the coming of the Lord, the rapture and the resurrection. That is the point, or that is the span of time that we're going to talk about tonight. And that is where what I have determined to call by the phrase heaven tonight. kind of hard to conceive of not having a body, isn't it? Why? Because we have always had a body. To me, I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, how can you desire to go somewhere where you don't have a body? How can we have a desire for heaven? That's hard to conceive of. And it's no wonder we know so little about it when we really yearn so much for it, or so little for it. But now the resurrection is a blessed thing. When we studied 1 Corinthians 15, it was a blessing to me just to study, to see that, that in all eternity we're going to have this very same body made perfect. Now that's easy for me to conceive of that. But this is not so easy. I know it's taking you a minute or two to get to 2 Corinthians 5, but I will get there. And I want to say this before we get there because I think it's important. We don't have to worry about what it'll be like not to have a body, because in one sense of the word, we will have a body during that intervening period of time. I will have a physical body, but in a sense, I believe we will have a spiritual body. Understand me. We will have a spirit that goes to be with heaven, and our spirit knows what it's like to live in a body. And even though. We will not have bodies. We can recognize one another. We'll know who each other is and so forth. Why? We'll be seeing through spiritual eyes and we can see spirit, spirits, spirit beings by use of spiritual eyes. How do I know that? Well, you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. The rich man knew Abraham, could see him, so forth in that story. You remember when uh, Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration? They were recognizable. When the Lord appeared in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, he appeared as a, a physical being. I, know, I don't know all there is to know about it, but in a sense we'll be able to see and recognize and understand each other, each other, who each other is and so forth, and it will be in a sense like having a body, only better. And then when we get our bodies, we'll be even better than that. You say, that's hard for me to fathom. Well, I know it is. It's hard for me to fathom too. But you ever think about this? Your eyes never see anything. You ever realize that? Your eyes don't see anything. The only thing in the world our eyes does is is take in light and refocus that and focus it on the back of our retina and our nerves or whatever it is takes that information and feeds it to our brain and tells us what's out there. The eyes are only windows to the soul. And even today we see with our spirit, our mind, It'll be no different than We just won't have the physical receptors. So don't worry about that part. I'm sure it'll be a, a blessed place, a place where we'll know each other, a place where we can feel and understand and see and know and be known. It won't be like floating around like a vapor. you boiling boil water and just floats off in every direction. Gosh, how would you like to have that if an existence? It's not going to be something like that. It's going to be something different. What will it be like? That's the question. And that's what Paul has to say here in 2 Corinthians 5. <laughs> Now, he says nothing about what I just said about the body, but he goes beyond that. And I thought we ought to preface those remarks with what I just said about that. We need to know about the Lord. We need to know about the place where the Lord resides, and we need to know about the place where we're going to go. And that's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In chapter 4, he talked a lot about suffering. And now in chapter 5, he talks talks about what heaven will be like. Heaven may be described in three ways. Now, he'll mention over and over again, as you'll see in chapter 5, about suffering. And I think that's what makes heaven such a blessed place and makes us so desirable of it. But we're, prim- we're primarily focusing in on what it will be like, and that's what we want to organize our outline around tonight. It will be, It may be described in three ways. In verses 1 to 4, we're going to find out that it may be described as an eternally perfect dwelling place. In verses 5 to 8, we're going to find out that it will consist of a fully realized fellowship with God. And then finally, in verses 9 and 10, we're going to see that heaven will be a continuing opportunity to serve the Lord. Let's look at that at this passage. What will heaven be like? First of all, it will be an eternally perfect dwelling place. Verse 1, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. If our earthly house of this tabernacle. Our earthly existence is described in two ways. As living in a house which consists of or is like a tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle is a tent. The Greek word translated tabernacle, same word we would translate tent. A tent speaks of a temporary place. And he is speaking about our existence, our dwelling place, this earth, this lifetime, this frame of time, this age, this world. It's a temporary existence. I remember when I was a kid, I went up to my uncle's and we built tents one time. And we took wood and we framed and we built an actual wood frame and a wood floor and we took this heavy dark black plastic like you find in uh, trash bags today, and we completely covered that and made the do- gone this nicest little tent you ever see, ever saw to uh, sleep out in. Trouble was, when we went up there to sleep in it, the thing was half ripped to shreds by the wind. were drive nails through plastic; doesn't last very long. Tacking like plastic up in the wind; it doesn't last. A tent is something that's temporary, and that's the picture we need to have in our minds of this world. This world is not permanent; it's temporary. There's something permanent coming. He says, when this tabernacle is dissolved, now that word translated, the verb translated word dissolved, is a Greek word which means literally to strike a tent or to take a tent down. When we take this tent down, friends, we take this temporary thing down that has not stood too well against the ravages of time in this lifetime, we're going on to a more permanent place, a building by contrast. We have a building of God, built by God. A house not made with hands of man, God constructed it, and it is eternal. It's permanent. It's located in the heaven. Now, it'll eventually eventually our dwelling place and our mansion will reside in the new Jerusalem. That's for next week. It is an eternal dwelling place. It is eternal as we see in verses two to four for several reasons. I should say not that it's eternal, but it is desirable. It is desirable, as we see in verses 2 to 4. First of all, it's desirable in view of our current suffering. He says, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Groaning has the idea of suffering mixed in it. And we mentioned earlier, it's within the context here, if you would go back and study chapter 4. We groan because of the life we now spend in this temporary dwelling place and this suffering that we endure here and this groaning has coupled with it an earnest desire to be clothed upon with our house which is a metaphorical way or a figurative way of saying we want to go on to a better existence it does not have the idea that we're going to receive a new body in heaven Uh, some people have gotten that out of here it's not saying that it's just using figurative language we'll not receive a resurrected body until the time of the And it will be the same body we had. Made new and made immortal. Not a new one. But we yearn and we desire. For a better dwelling place. Because of all the things that cause suffering to us here. All the trials. All the problems. All the injustice. All those things that we suffer with in this world. Including our own sin nature. It's desirable because of our. Current suffering, it's also undesirable because of its perfect provision, verse 3. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. And here's another reason why some have misinterpreted thinking we get a new body. The word naked here has the idea of being destitute. It means having nothing, no, no shelter, no clothing, nothing to protect you. And he is simply saying that when we get to heaven, we're not going to be destitute. We're going to have everything we need for a perfect existence. And then finally, we're going to see here in verse 4. That is desirable because it's a triumph over death. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being... Where did I miss that at? No, yeah, that's right. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, let me explain that quickly for you. Pay close attention to verse 4. For we that are in this tabernacle, that is, in this age, we're still groaning, as he mentioned earlier, desiring heaven. Why? The reason why we groan is because we have been burdened, being burdened, being burdened by sin, being burdened by trials and problems and suffering and all that we, we have referred to earlier. All those things. That's why we groan, because we're burdened. Not that we wish to be unclothed, Paul says, and Now, here's what Paul is saying, it seems to me. It's not that we just want to leave this world and leave this earth and get out of here for our own selfish benefit, but we're going to be better off. And Paul, I think, has in the back of his mind our ministry in this world, which is important to God and to other people. Paul says we don't want to just leave behind our job because we're selfish. But, Paul says, our desire is a desire to see mortality swallowed up of life. In other words, he's saying we have a good motivation behind this. We want to see God victorious. We want to see God elevate life over mortality. We want to see death swallowed up in victory, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. It will be a time of triumph. It will be something that glorifies God, and therefore it is appropriate to desire it for that reason. Now, first of all, Heaven will be like this. It will be an eternally perfect dwelling place. Now, secondly, what will be like? Number two, it will consist of a fully realized fellowship with God. Verses five to eight. Paul says, "Now he that hath wrought us." Now the verb here it's actually a participle referring to the Lord, but the little the word "wrought" in the English, it translates. The Greek word that we usually translate work. He that has worked in us. Or he that has brought us about. It's almost another way of saying he who has created us. He who has regenerated us as we've seen this morning. Given us spiritual life. Him, God. He that has wrought us for this very same thing. Now what is the same thing that he's wrought us for? Why did he save us? That we might be have mortality swallowed up by life. That's pointing back to verse 4. God brought us to salvation. He gave us Christ, Uh, he, He gave us new life, everlasting life, our eternal possession, as we saw this morning, for a purpose. And that purpose goes on, even when this existence in this world is over. Now, He that has wrought us for this very same thing is God, who hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. First of all, this fully realized fellowship is described in this way. That God is the author of it. He's the one that wrought us. And not only has he brought it to pass, but he has given us a down payment on its full execution. When he says here that he has given us the earnest of the Spirit, it's like saying earnest money. A down payment. This very word was used in Paul's day of an engagement ring. Some of you young, young fellows here, but one of these days when you give someone and some girl an engagement ring, you're not supposed to ask for it back. <laughs> I know. You might want one back someday. But in actuality, maybe it's not so in our culture. But in actuality, that was a down payment. If you don't come through with the other part of the payment, you lose it. At least that was the way it was in this culture. It's a down payment. That's why a bank will not finance anything 100%. I was shocked when I grew up. You know, As I growing up, you know, and I finally I started buying cars. You go to borrow money for a car, they won't give you enough money to buy a car. And I thought, well, that's silly. You go to the bank to get a loan. Now what they tell me they only give me 75% of it. Or 80% of it. You know why? Because they require a down payment. You know why they require a down payment? Because if you'll put up some of your money, that assures the bank that you're going to pay for the rest of it. Why? If you don't pay the bank for the rest of it, you lose your down payment. If you went in there and you, but you, they financed a car for 100% or a home for 100%, all you'd have to do is decide next week, oh, I don't think I want it. The bank would be stuck with it. They'd have to resell it or whatever. That's their, that's their guarantee that you're in good faith going to do something more. And the Holy Spirit, which God has given to us to indwell us as Christians, is God's down payment, His guarantee. We know because He's done that much that He's going to come through with the rest of it. we have a down payment on fellowship. The Spirit of God enables us to have fellowship with God in this life, and that's why we can have experience partially heaven on earth, here and now, as we said this morning. But there's going to be a more fully realized fellowship when we stand face to face with Him. Because of this, we can live courageously as Christians. Verse 6. Paul says, therefore, we are always confident. Now, the phrase here, confidence, or the word confident, has the idea of being of good cheer or to being of good courage, being courageous. He says, therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, for 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. But notice the confidence that he mentions here. Confidence to live in this life. We can live confidently and courageously because we know when this life comes to an end, there's something better awaiting. I listened to an interview this week of a former Chicago Bear lineman. One not playing in the Super Bowl right at this present time. His name was Roger Stillwell, played a few years ago. Brian Gumbel interviewed him on 12386, whatever day that was this week. What did that have been, uh, Friday, Thursday? And Roger Stillwell was injured a few years ago. A very bad injury, really tore up his knee. And his, he told Brian that he was recovering right now from back surgery. He was all messed up. He, uh, he was pretty much an invalid. And they were discussing football injuries and whether he would allow his son to play or not. And he said he wished he wouldn't or he, he didn't think he would allow him to. He went on and he was asked by Mr. Gumble if the Bears were helping him in any way. He said no. His life was completely devastated because of this football injury. And as they went on to talk about football and the game and the violence of it, Bryant Gumble said something about, well, when you're on that field, you have no regard for your own self and your own body and... Stillwell affirmed that. He said yes, and I'm not quoting exactly, but he says when you're on the field, you have no regard for your own body, and assuredly not, or for certain, not the body of your opponent. You just throw yourself into the game without any regard to personal injury. You're bent on violence. You're bent on, bent on <laughs> pushing that other team back and gaining the uh, the yardage and so forth, or unstopping them from having the yardage at any cost. And that's the frame of mind with which the game is played. I know that's a good illustration of the frame of mind with which we as Christians ought to live this life. To literally throw ourselves wholeheartedly, completely into the Christian life, to live for God without any consideration for ourselves. One difference. We do consider our. Fellow man. But we should not worry about ourselves and we should not be so fretful about the bad things that can happen to ourselves or what we have to give up or what we've got to sacrifice. Live wholeheartedly for the Lord. Why? Because this is such a brief span of time and in no time at all this game will be over. And we won't be like Roger Stillwell laid up somewhere, an invalid for life. We'll go on and our wounds will be completely healed. And we'll have a perfect existence. No aches, no pains, no problems, no suffering and no tears. It'll consist of a fully realized fellowship with God and we'll have a lot of other benefits. We can live courageously, therefore, and at the same time look forward to being with the Lord. That's what it's all about. That's what makes it heaven. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Literally a song that says, That will be what makes it heaven for me. Choir sing that? Something like that? Maybe we saying it. You know what will really make heaven heaven, Jesus? In Luke 23 and verse 43, he said to the dying thief on the cross, Today thou wilt be with me in paradise. What made it paradise? The fact that he would be with the Lord. I know probably many of you, when you're first, mar- first when you were first married, lived. A very meager existence. Maybe in a small trailer or a small house and without very many things and uh, maybe drove an old car. I don't know. Maybe not for everybody, but you usually have that picture in mind when two people first get married and they aren't very well established, don't have that good a job, and are just starting out. But did you mind? No. You didn't mind. Why? Because you were with her. Or you were with him. That's what made it special, not what you had. It's a shame as we grow older, it seems, and our marriage relationships are focus changes maybe and we get too much involved with the material. It's the same way with heaven. We shouldn't be so much concerned really with what heaven will be like. Our main concern is who will be there. We will and God will. And that's that'll be what makes it heaven more than anything else. It will consist of a fully realized fellowship with God as well as being an eternally perfect dwelling place. And then number three, heaven may be described in this third way as well. It will be a continuing opportunity to live for the Lord, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, wherefore, It's like saying therefore, because of all that I've already said, here's a conclusion. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now the verb translated labor is a Greek word which means literally to be ambitious. We are ambitious of pleasing God. The word translated accepted means well-pleasing. It means to please God. We're ambitious to please Him. It's ambition in the good sense. Ambition in the sense of trying to bring glory to God. Wherefore we labor, or we're ambitious, that whether present or absent, we may be well-pleasing or accepted at Him. Now notice the phrase, whether present or absent. There's no difference. When we go to be in heaven, when our body goes to sleep, and our spirit goes to be with the Lord, when we're in heaven, what are we going to be doing? Pleasing God. And what are we doing in this life as Christians? What should we be doing? Pleasing God. No difference. We can have some heaven here and now. this morning we talked about this our purpose. Our purpose is the same now as then to do God's will, to bring glory to Him, to be His workmanship. And when we're there in heaven, we need no motivation to please God because we'll be perfect We'll be without that sin nature and all the problems we face now that toward us from being all that we should be. But while we're in this life, we need a little extra motivation. That's what Paul talks about next, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everything may, everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ occurs immediately after the rapture, immediately after the resurrection. There will be no need to judge anything done during that time of heaven. But, back here, before we die, the things done in the body, those things will be rewarded or not rewarded at this judgment seat. It will not be a judgment of sin. We're already in heaven. We're already saved. There will be no judgment, no condemnation for any past, present, or future sin in anyone's life here tonight. It will be a judgment for the purpose of distributing rewards. There will be a reward for the good faith. And there will be nothing for the others. Now look with me in verse 10. Look closely. This judgment seat of Christ. The phrase judgment seat. It's the Greek word bima. The bima seat. It was a seat that the judge in the ancient Olympics in Greece sat on. Now have you ever, in any of your viewing of the Olympics, ever seen to take the losers out and shoot them? The loser doesn't get punished. The loser just doesn't have the gold net. And it's the same way it is here. God's not going to punish Christians who fail to serve Him as they should. But some won't have a reward. They won't have anything special because of it. A reward as we've seen, uh, as we discussed uh, a week or so ago, I believe will have something to do with our capacity to worship God and serve God throughout all eternity. It might mean a reduced capacity to do all that we want to do in that perfect body one day. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether good or bad. Now the word bad, it's translated bad, but it's a Greek word that simply means worthless. Now in this life, in this day and age, we either do good things or we do worthless things. Why does he use that terminology? Because we're not talking about punishment for sin, only reward for good and no reward for worthless endeavors. Brittany has quite a few toys. I suppose all kids have that accumulation that gathers in the house. And if you let her, she would destroy every room in the house. There would be toys everywhere. And the only way we have found to motivate her to pick up her toys... you ever tried to tell a kid, now pick your toys up. After about the tenth time you tell them and threaten them and everything else, they might pick one up and there's still 25 laying there. That seems to be the way it is with kids. But we can motivate her... By putting a lot of her toys up on high shelves. Now, she has some that she can get at all the time. That she can get without asking. But eventually she'll come and say, Daddy, can I have so and so? She came to me today and said, Daddy, can I have my doctor's kit? She likes to work with grandpa and around. And I said, Really? Any toys to picked up? And I don't know. I she ran and looked through the whole house. Why? Because she knew she wasn't going to get that doctor's kit until she picked the other toys up. And that is a reward for what? For her doing what's good. If she does something worthless, she doesn't pick any toys up that are already out, she gets no reward, but I don't take her 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 facts. That's exactly the way it works here with the Lord at this point in time. And that is our motivation to live for Him now. We don't need that motivation in heaven, but we need it now. But we do the same thing. We please Him now if we are properly motivated, and we will please Him then. Now this is Paul's description of heaven, of being absent from the body. It It will be the beginning of what will be an eternally perfect dwelling place. And a fully realized fellowship with God. And finally, it will just be a continuing opportunity to live for the Lord. It's a pretty wonderful place. I suspect maybe God didn't give us a lot of other details because we like to get bogged down in details and really miss the things that are really important. And these are the things that are really important. Fellowship with God. Perfect dwelling place. Serving God. I think he, he left it pretty much as that. We ought to look forward to that. Nobody can tell you that you should, and you just go out and do it. I think it's just a process of living in this old, imperfect world over a period of time. How close are we to it, though? That's a different question. The great Baptist preacher in England of the former century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, used this illustration. He said, we measure time by, or we measure distance, that is, by time. He said, now, there might be a place only a few miles off, but it's a long way. Because there's no train to that city. Maybe another city that's much, much farther away, but there's a train goes there. We didn't have airplanes back then, remember? We could use that as an illustration. We could say, you know, it, it would take you a lot longer to drive from here to, say, Louisville, Kentucky, than it would to go from here to Miami, Florida by plane. In a sense, Louisville is a lot farther away than Miami, if it if, well, probably is, but if there was no plane to Louisville. He says, you, measured, you measure distance by time. So how how far is it to heaven? Spurgeon says, but how near must we say heaven is? For it is just one side, and we are there. Heaven's just one sigh away, one gasp, one breath. That's all the farther away it is. I hope that we're ready. I hope if you're not a Christian, you're ready to stand before the Lord. Only you're not one sigh away from heaven. You're one sigh away from something that's a lot worse than that, eternal suffering. And for the Christian, I, I certainly hope that your life is a life. That when that time comes, when that last breath is taken, that it'll be a life that can stand before Him and receive reward because you've served Him faithfully here. Has it been that kind of life?